You are listening to the Speak Podcast. The podcast featuring talks from Speak, a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories. Produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. Welcome to the Speak Podcast, produced by Launchpad 516 Studios. New episodes available every week on all your favorite podcast platforms. Speak is a public speaking platform for people with ideas and stories. Each Speak Talk features three key moments. The moment of truth, the moment of transformation, and the moment of impact. We host pop-up events all over the world, and now we are bringing our talks to your device. Our speakers are stepping onto the stage and into the spotlight, and now onto this podcast. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the Speak Podcast. I'm your host for this week, George Andriopoulos, the architect and one of the co-leaders here at Speak. This week's micro theme is figuring out life. What a perfect micro theme for these three speakers that we have lined up today. And in essence, that's kind of what all of our talks try to do. It's trying to figure out life. And we thought this would be the perfect way to describe these coming talks. So let's dive in. Our first published speaker for this episode is Lydia Bonilla with her talk from Speak Love. Lydia Bonilla is a speaker and coach committed to uplifting the lives of women through radical self-acceptance and self-mastery around pleasure and purpose. Lydia was such an incredible pleasure to work with with this talk which was so honest really to the core of what she is about and what she has overcome in life so without further ado let's dive into the veil from Lydia Bonilla my mother says having cataracts is a lot like having a thin veil over her eyes she can see that the Sun is shining but she can't tell you where it is in the sky Having depression for over eight years was a lot like that. It was like a heavy veil over my life. I can see the goals that I wanted to achieve in the sky, but they were just shapes. On some days, the veil was so dark that it blinded me. On other days, it was so heavy, my feet felt like bricks. I was highly functional. I didn't take to my bed. I created a business under the veil. I celebrated friends under the veil. I presented cases to the Department of Justice under the veil. I laughed, I traveled, I did everything, and I did it all depressed. And like anybody else, any normal human being, I had my coping mechanisms to, to, deal, to deal with that that would push back the veil for a spell. Uh, work, overworking, travel, men, inappropriate men, quite inappropriate at times, my therapist would say. Um, but no matter what, the veil was there in the morning like a dog begging for its breakfast. And I did everything I knew to do, everything I could do, everything that I could afford to do to fight for my life. 
I did therapy, I did coaching programs, I did a 10-day silent meditation retreat in the middle of the jungle. I did, I read self-help books, I did hypnosis, I did yoga, I did it all. And the veil was still there, faithful and true. And once I was taking care of my ailing father and the grief over his death, my depression was now socially acceptable. I was grieving, so it was okay. But secretly it got worse. I started to mourn my own life, started to picture myself already dead, wondered about who would find me. Would that cause them trauma? What would I look like? Um, what would I look like dead? Would they follow my instructions if I asked to be buried in this? Uh, what would I look like? Would the service be fashionable? Would it be stylish? What would they serve? And then I'd be like, you know, I can't die. I can't die yet because I can't control what's happening. I don't know how this, is th this thing is gonna turn out. I can't die, can't die. Um, now, I know that you know, suicide and depression is a sensitive topic for a number of people. Um, and, and I imagine some people may have been impacted by it personally. And my intention is not to entertain or to make it a joke, but rather to show how absurd some of these dangerous thoughts can be when you really make them reality. What I've learned is that these dark thoughts are actually not as solid as one would might think. They're actually more like marshmallows. You know, they look hard, but when you touch it, they're, they're pretty soft. And if you question them, you can make them less real. You know, death really does begin and end in the mind. So at this point, I had been in therapy for six months, and the quality of my life, uh, both inner and outer, improved dramatically. And I was, for all intents and purposes, fine. And my therapist would say, Lydia, you're surviving. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. I'm not, I'm here, but I'm not thriving. I'm not in hell anymore, but I'm not in heaven either. So I decide to go to Kripalu, which is a yoga retreat in the Berkshire Mountains um, that I've been to oh, a bunch of times over, over 20 years. And it's a place that I would go to take a break from the veil. And on my way there, I buy a book by Martha Beck by, uh, titled The Way of Integrity. And, you know, I didn't think anything of it. I didn't think much of it. I was like, oh, I'll just buy this book. That's fine. I couldn't put it down because it resonated so much with, with my experience. And one of the things that Martha Beck um, tells, instructs you to do is to embrace your hell thoughts, which is the thoughts that you have that you would rather like, like, yeah, run in the street naked than to admit that, to, to even to say out loud, much less to write them down in black and white. And I did that. And I was like, oh, this, this sucks. This is, this is awful. But I was in this beautiful environment eating organic food or overlooking a lake, so it wasn't so bad. And um, in yoga class, um, while in my, I'm in my most like, earnest uh, warrior pose, 
I'm listening to my normal bedlam of thoughts, which is, oh God, this was so much easier when I was 20 pounds lighter. Oh, when is this bitch, skinny bitch gonna let me out of this damn pose already? <laughs> uh, when something just rushed over me and interrupted everything and just stopped me. And I realized that my spiritual journey was for three reasons and for three reasons alone. Number one, to fix my brokenness. Number two, which is, was to um, fix myself so that I can finally be a better machine and finally meet my goals so I could finally be fucking happy. And three, so I can have knowledge that I could lord over others, make myself smarter, make myself more evolved, more transformed. And I thought if I got to the root of who I was, the root of my rottenness as a human being, that I could scoop it out, correct it, and finally get what I felt I deserved, which is admiration, validation, wealth, love, um, all the while also looking better and smarter than everybody else. And that was a very ugly truth to, to, to deal with and to sit in, and I did. And, but something miraculous happened after that. I'm not sure when it happened uh, during the, the trip, but at some point I realized that I wasn't broken. That in fact, I was actually being broken open. That I was whole, and I always was. Everything that I knew to be true, all of a sudden wasn't so true. And it was really enlightenment. Um, so Martha Beck refers to this experience as sudden enlightenment, or satori, which is uh, Japanese for sudden enlightenment. And you know, and over the t over the time of my spiritual journey, I've read about this. Every every world religion has a person that's gone on top of a mountain and experienced uh, this thing. And but I was like. That don't happen to me. Like, I ain't never done mushrooms. I've never been a burning man. Like, how is that gonna happen to me? How did this happen to me? And I was so much in disbelief of it that I asked um, Brian Katie, which is a well-known spiritual teacher, who talks about her own experience with sudden enlightenment. Um, how, you know, how, how do you do this? How did this happen? And she says, it's a state of grace that really is feels unbelievable, but it's when an open mind meets a state of wisdom. And it's been pretty cool, to say the least. Um, so up until this point, I haven't mentioned the word, the word love, and um, that's for a reason. And that's because you really can't love anything that is broken. If you think you are broken in, in some kind of way, you won't, you, you won't achieve what you think uh, self-love really is. And I really understand it now in a way that I never really could before. Um, when you know that you're not broken, when you know that you are whole, what becomes available is compassion, forgiveness. Forgiveness is easy. And I could hold a grudge. I, was, I mean, I could, I could write down my grudges and recite them. Now, forgiveness is easy because it's, it's actually for me. It's actually loving myself. So 
Choosing to take care of myself is self-love. Choosing to be around people who celebrate me, validate me, witness me, that is self-love. Choosing not to go because I don't want to go is self-love. And this awareness, this gift of self-love is one of, it's, it's the greatest gift that Vail gave me and I am forever grateful for it. Thank you. Again, that was Lydia Benia with The Veil from Speak Love. Lydia was such an incredible speaker and so much fun to collaborate with, and we thank her for everything that she brought to our stage. Our next talk comes from Joe Apfelbaum, who spoke at our Speak Laughter event. His talk, entitled The Journey to Laughter, Trauma to Triumph in Entrepreneurship, was so much fun to work with with Joe as we collaborated together for a number of weeks in sort of designing how this talk would be laid out. Joe is an incredibly successful entrepreneur, and I love when somebody like that comes to the table as a student, willing to learn and ready to master a new skill set. In this Speak Talk, Joe Applebaum takes us on a roller coaster ride of his life. As a kid, he was called an idiot by his teacher. This crushed him, but it also sparked something unique, making people laugh. He transformed this coping mechanism into a thriving business. Despite his success, Joe's inner critic didn't stop. He wrestled with this voice, but found healing in laughter, personal growth, and self-love. This is a story about overcoming the odds, harnessing pain for growth, and the liberating power of self-acceptance. Without any further ado, here's Joe Applebaum with The Journey to Laughter, Trauma to Triumph in Entrepreneurship. I have a confession to make. But before I make my confession, I have a question for you. Do you ever hear a disempowering or negative voice in your head? Do you ever put yourself down, have a voice that puts you down? Raise your hand if that resonates with you. For me, sometimes my voice in my head is really quiet, and sometimes it's really loud. And my confession is not that I have a voice, because it seems like all of you have a voice in your head. It's that, for me, the voice in my head calls me an idiot. And for the longest time, I believed this voice that was in my head, and I, I thought it was the truth. And it really put me down so many times in my life. And I started thinking about, where did this voice come from? When I started doing the work, personal development, I realized that there was actually an incident that happened in my life that, or, that had the birth or the creation of this voice. When I was in the third grade, remember my teacher asking me to get up and read in front of the whole class. And when I got up to read, I was struggling really badly. The whole class started laughing, and the teacher thought I was making jokes in front of those 30 boys in the class. And he got pretty angry at me, and I felt so ashamed. And I remember him yelling at me and saying, Joe, sit down, you idiot. And I quickly sat down, and I vowed to myself that I would never get up to speak in public again. I was so disempowered from that incident 
that I really, like looking back to myself, I thought to myself, wow, this really hurt me. But I do remember feeling a little bit magical when everybody started laughing. So like there was this like thing like, oh my gosh, I'm so ashamed, but at the same time, people are laughing and it actually feels weird. Like what is this feeling? And so I started doing what any little kid does, started making everybody laugh. And I got really, really good at it. The teachers didn't like it at all. They actually got pretty upset. But I worked really hard to sound really smart and be really smart. So I was the kid in the class that got the material right away. So the teachers loved it. I was like, oh, he picked it up. He's really smart. But I had to work to get smart because I had that little voice in my head calling me an idiot constantly. So I had to work really, really hard to be the smartest. But no matter how much I knew, I still didn't feel smart. And the teachers kept getting angry at me because I would always make jokes. I would make little comments. I would make little noises. And I would draw things. I got really good at drawing. I would draw cartoons of my teachers in yoga, doing yoga in dresses. That didn't go well with the rabbis. <laughs> and so I constantly was getting punished for doing something that actually my, my class loved. Like my, the kids in the class actually loved that. I would make all these little noises when the class got really quiet. I figured out the right thing to say to get under my teacher's skin. And I just got really, really good at it. But no matter how smart I was, it's, that voice was still kind of like nagging me in the back of my head. And the only thing that I felt somewhat cured that was when people laughed. Then I heard a different voice, a voice that said, genius. Because the other voice that I was competing with, it was like, Joe, you're an idiot. You're a stupid idiot. Shame on you. And it was strong. I never knew that it was there. I just heard it. I thought it was me. It would constantly tell me, Joe, don't do that. Shame on you for doing that. But when people laughed, genius, genius, you're making people laugh. Keep doing more of that. That's good. It wasn't about the information. It was about the laughter. And what I felt was that like, when, when I laughed so hard, I felt like my soul was healing. When I saw other people laugh, I felt like their soul was healing. So there was something about subconsciously that I knew that this was the path for me, that I needed to learn about this and be better at this. And what ended up happening is I got really good at getting attention. That's, that's like what happened. As a result, I was like the, the kid, and people thought I was like this attention seeker, but it wasn't for me, it wasn't about attention, it was about healing, it was about laughter, it was about connection. And so I was the guy that just made everybody laugh unintentionally, just people would just laugh. I would do things, say things, make noises, whatever, make faces, and people would laugh. And I still had a chip on my shoulder that I wasn't smart enough, that I wasn't good enough. So when I decided to build a business, I said, I'm gonna prove to the voice in my head that I'm not an idiot, and I'm gonna figure out how to build a multi-million dollar business, because then I'm gonna feel smart. Then I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn that voice off. And so I went on a mission. I started working 16 hours a day. I built one of the fastest growing companies in America. Ajax Union was featured on the Inc. 500, number 178, servicing over 1,100 clients. But the voice was still there. The voice was like, eh, this is nothing. What is this? So you built a business, big deal. Sounded like an old Jewish lady. So what, big deal? So you built a business, no, no, so what? 
So I built another business, Evergreen, trains businesses. We trained over 1,000 clients on how to use LinkedIn, how to use artificial intelligence to get clients. But still, the voice was there. You need more clients. What, you only have 1,000 clients? What's wrong with you? What are you, what are you, an idiot? You're an idiot, Joe. So I said, okay. Let me go become a professional speaker. I'll overcome my fear. I joined the National Speakers Association, the NSA. I became a prof professional speaker, traveling the world, speaking, audiences, engaging, loving me, laughing constantly in a professional setting, saying professional things, sometimes in an unprofessional way, but most of the time saying professional things to get people to laugh and to have fun and to connect and to actually take away something of value. Because I thought that I would somehow turn this voice off. But the more successful I became and the more things that I did in order to turn it off, the louder it got, believe it or not. And so for me, that voice started just like being so, so loud. It said, Joe, so what if you're a successful entrepreneur generating millions of dollars? So what if you are a professional speaker traveling the world? So what if you publish five books? So what if you're an angel investor? So what if you're a business connector? So what? You're an idiot, Joe. You're a complete, total idiot. It was like almost like a, a, an uphill battle. <sighs> Your marriage is failing. You're not a good father. What's wrong with you? So I said, you know what? I'm going to hire coaches. I'm going to hire therapists. I'm going to hire mentors. I'm going to go to therapy and coaching and mentoring and courses and Tony Robbins and Landmark Forum and more and more. I even got a shaman and we did shrooms. And then I think to myself, like, what the hell am I doing? I'm just going to be the best possible father that I could be to my five kids. I dedicated myself to get to know each one of them individually, to spend time with them. I got divorced, reestablished my integrity with my relationships. It was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I worked on my religious trauma. I went to a special doctor, did breath work and ketamine and this and that. And blah, 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 blah. And all of a sudden, I'm like all ready to go, and I have a realization that if I believe the voice in my head that I'm an idiot, then I am an idiot. Because the voice in my head is just noise, like the clouds that I can see, like the rain that I can feel. It's not me. It's not who I am. Everybody makes mistakes. Everybody feels stupid. We're just human. Sometimes we make mistakes, and sometimes I do stupid things. That doesn't mean that I'm an idiot. But if I believe that voice, well, then that makes me an idiot. So I chose to create a new empowering voice, a voice that says, Joe, you're an amazing father. You're an amazing lover. You're an amazing friend. You're an amazing leader. You're an amazing entrepreneur. You're an amazing ball of energy that's only here for a short time. And in that short time, you're going to be love. You're going to be joy. You're going to be present for the people in your life. And you're going to love yourself more than anyone could possibly love you. Because if your tank is full, then you can fill up other people's tanks with laughter and with joy and with freedom. And so I'm on a mission to help a million people be able to find their voice with artificial intelligence, but I can only do that if my cup is full. I believe that the secret to living is giving. Not faking and taking, or waking and baking, although that's fun. I believe 
that for me, the key to success is being present for the people in my life and loving them with all my heart. But I can't do that unless I love myself. I can't do that unless I realize that the voice in my head is not who I am, it's just noise. So with that, I wanna say thank you for being with my voice. I love you. Wow, thank you so much, Joe, for such an incredible talk. Again, Joe was a pleasure to work with and somebody who has grown so much in his speaking career aside from his already successful professional career. So I look forward to seeing what Joe is going to accomplish in the future on the stage. Thank you, Joe. Our final speaker for this episode is Phoenix Carnival. She says, being of mixed race can leave you in cultural limbo, feeling a piece of everything, but also feeling like you're in pieces. Not enough of this and maybe too much of that, yet not belonging anywhere. Phoenix Carnival worked on piecing it all together to feel whole when she's two halves of two cultures. Here's Phoenix Carnival with me in parts and pieces from Speak Heritage. All right. I'm just going to start off by saying, I don't really like talking about this. But as you become a mature adult, eh, I don't want to say mature because I still read comic books and wear Snoopy socks. So as you become an adult, you realize that the things that you don't like to talk about are very often the things that you should talk about. It's um, confronting your dragon. And when you confront your dragon, you have to either slay it or make peace with it, if you want to be the hero of your story. And like I said, I read comic books, so I like to be the hero. All right, so what's so uncomfortable to talk about? Well, it's the feeling of being misplaced when you're of mixed race. Like you're pieces of this and parts of that, but ultimately your pieces and your parts don't really fit anywhere. So humor has always been my superpower. And when you're funny, people kind of let you fit in. But that also leaves you feeling like if you're not entertaining, you're not safe. In the past, when I would talk about my mixed heritage, it would be in some sort of self-deprecating way. Sort of like Eminem and 8 Mile. I would make fun of myself first before anyone else could do it. Oh, by the way, I'm going to be making a lot of pop culture references, so if you're less than 35, you might want Google, like, very handy. <sighs> People can't really place me. And they'll ask me, what are you? And I'll be like, well, I'm human, or I'm Batman. Michael Keaton, 89. You might Google it. <laughs> and then I'll say, I'm half Puerto Rican and half Italian. That's why I'm so calm and mild-mannered. Or I'll make jokes like, hey, you know why Latinos are so good at cleaning? Because we clean to salsa and it makes us move faster. That's true, I do it every Sunday, highly recommend it. Or I'll say, I have superior taste buds because I'm Italian. Or if you need something, I always know a guy who knows a guy who knows a guy. <laughs> my mom is Puerto Rican and my dad's Italian. And as much as I, I really love both sides of my heritage, being mixed can make you feel very mixed up. Too much of this, maybe too little of that, and we all want to belong somewhere. I started really noticing these sort of mixed feelings when I got to high school. Not only do you experience racism, but you feel racism. 
And when you're considered what's called white passing, you bear witness to a lot of it, like an infiltrator on both sides, like a racism double agent. I'll admit, I would see the difference between how I was treated and how my dark-skinned friends or Afro-Latinos are treated. And I know sometimes we grew up in very different Americas. Though, you know, as a Latin woman, you go through your fair share of stuff too. I mean, we are fetishized, over-sexualized, and worse, compared to J-Lo at like every waking moment. I'll admit, it's still not as painful as being judged merely over the color of your skin. I'd be with a group of friends and they would say something like super racist. And I'm like, um, guys, 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 you know, I'm, I'm Latina. Yeah, but you're not really Latina. What, like there's a whole half of my family that doesn't exist. I mean, what, or I don't fit the stereotypes that you're used to seeing on TV. So now I'm insulted two ways. Am I insulted because I'm Latina or am I insulted because you don't think I'm Latina or should I be insulted because you don't think you insulted me? Ah! After high school, I got into acting. And that's a whole nother fit the box kind of racism. People can't really place me. So now Hollywood calls this ethnically ambiguous. And it actually really has gotten better. But when I started like 15 years ago, not aging myself, but 15 years ago when I started. These were the Latin options for casting. Video ho. Drug dealer's girlfriend. Pregnant. The pregnant drug dealer's girlfriend in the music video. <laughs> and I was always asked to speak in some phony baloney accent that only like 2% of Latinos even sound like. It really actually wasn't even that much better for the Italian side. People would say, you should audition for the Sopranos. Like there's nothing else that Italians do than join the mafia. I mean, what is going on? Why does everything have to fit in a box? Are there no mixed people in the world of film and television? And on top of that, we're talking about boxes. Every form I have ever filled out has asked me to pick a side. I mean, there's no mixed box. Do I color in both sides? Nowhere on this thing does it say multiple choice. I know. I think about it all the time. And I know that I'm talking about my Latino side quite a bit, but let's face it, you know, it's kind of easier to be white. Now calm down, white people. I am not saying that your life is not hard. We all have our fair share of stuff. I'm just saying that more often than not, more often than not, your ethnicity isn't always a factor in how difficult it is. And on top of it, I mean, you don't get a lot of flack from the Italian side if you don't speak the language. But if you're Latino and you don't speak Spanish, oh, I hear, I hear you, yes, <laughs> I see it. You get a look like you have turned your back on your people. I don't know what the Latino version of like that samurai suicide is, but I'm sure it involves a chancleta in some way. <laughs> when you're a kid, you try to assimilate. So from generation to generation, things dilute quite a bit. And I feel like the language died when my grandmother did. And guys, that is not an excuse. <sighs> that is a huge source of my shame 
to not even be able to communicate with my fellow Latinos, to not even be able to give directions when I'm asked, and even worse, even if I can, I don't, because of fear that the conversation will go beyond my limited capacities. I have tried to learn Spanish so many times, and each time I fail miserably because there's 800 versions of Spanish. Dialects, accents, slang, and Dominicans. Could you slow down just a little? Just a little. <laughs> One time, I called my best friend and fellow Latina, Antonia, like hysterical crying. I'm like, I'm trying to learn Spanish, and I can't learn it. I know that onion is cebolla, but I called it cebolo, and now everyone's calling me cebolo. She was like, listen, I get it. I understand why it's so hard. You're putting a huge amount of pressure on yourself, and things are always harder to learn when you're not having any fun. And that is when it hit me. My Latino friends, my Latinx friends, have never judged me. They've never looked at me like I was any less Latino. I mean, sure, some people weren't always kind, but I just got rid of those people. Oh, I just realized that sounded like I killed them. No. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't kill them, so yeah. She's over there like, she sleeps with the fishes. Google Godfather, guess you know, yeah. No, I, I just realized that they never really judged me because that's what friends do. They love you for your parts, your pieces, your quirks that make you you. My friends never looked at me as less than, they looked at me as some sort of just weird little hybrid. And I loved that. They would say things like, oh man, Puerto Rican and Italian? Christmas must be awesome at your house. Those are my two favorite foods. Or at the martial arts schools that I train, they'd be like, that's why you're so tough. Or my current acting manager, Gail, would say, what a beautiful combination. There's so much you can do. The people in your life, <laughs> man, they make such a difference. So I was like, well, they love me. I'm gonna stop thinking of myself as mixed. And I'm gonna think of myself as some weird little hybrid. So I 23 and me'd myself. I don't know if you don't know what that means, but you, you send in a swab of your DNA and then they tell you all the places that you're linked to. Now I know conspiracy theorists, you're worried about the cloning. Well, where's the camera? Hey, if you do clone me, make me taller. Oh, and tell me in my 20s, don't date any DJs <laughs> or magicians. What's the today's current version of that? Crypto guys? Crypto guys. None of those. Well, 23andMe was awesome. I found out all of these places that my DNA was linked to. It was like the Canary Islands, uh, Nigeria, places, special spots of Italy. There was Aztec blood. All of this stuff made so much sense and no longer did I feel mixed up. I had this burning desire to explore. I wanted to travel and learn and understand the history. And here's the coolest part. Not only did I learn about my Puerto Rican and my Italian side, there was Ashkenazi Jew. Yeah, and if you understand my family's obsession with Seinfeld, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> because he's a god. I loved it. I felt special, and I felt the history of people coursing through my veins. How cool is heritage? How amazing is planet Earth? 
to think that people travel distant lands to settle somewhere and create lives. We are all contributors to this big, giant, floating rock, which means we should be much more grateful of each other, more tolerant, and think that this is pretty cool. I love my Puerto Rican side. I love the warmth of my people. I love the smell of the food. I love the music you cannot stop moving to. I love listening to Mark Anthony in the living room with my mother. And I love the affection of my friends. I love my Italian side. I love that the smell of basil will forever remind me of my dad. I love our jokes and our talks. And I love the idea of a Sunday dinner together. The world's a hybrid. I have made peace with my dragon, even though he bites me every once in a while, usually when someone's asking me for directions in Spanish. But I've made peace with him because I realize that my pieces and my parts are part of my personal puzzle. And I am a unique mix of heritage, places, experiences, and most importantly, the love and support of my friends and family. These pieces make me whole. Thank you. How much fun was that talk? And yet so important and so serious at the same time. Thank you, Phoenix, for bringing the honesty and bringing the laughs to our Speak Heritage event. I remember when the Speak Heritage producer, Dana Lopez, told me about Phoenix. She was so excited as to the energy that Phoenix was going to bring to the stage, and she absolutely did not disappoint. Thank you so much, Phoenix. Before we wrap up, I just want to point out and thank one of our channel partners, Meredith Grundy from Grundy Coaching, who provided us with our speaker from Speak Laughter, Joe Applebaum. Thank you to all of our channel partners at Speak, especially in this episode, Meredith Grundy, for nominating Joe Applebaum. That does it for this episode of the Speak Podcast. We hope you enjoyed these three incredible talks, and we hope that you come back next week and every week after to hear people with ideas and stories on this important platform. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time. Speak Podcast is brought to you by Launchpad 516 Studios, executive produced by Fred P. Banning, Jason Martin, and George Andriopoulos. Our theme song, Champions Day, is by Lupus Nocti. Incidental music, Melting Places, is by Andreas Kantu. Music and sound effects licensed through Epidemic Sound. The Speak Podcast is hosted with Podbean. Make sure to subscribe to this feed wherever podcasts are available and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts while you're at it. Follow Speak at Speak underscore event on Twitter and at Speak event on all other social media platforms. Visit our website, speakevent.com, for upcoming events, channel partner, sponsorship, and Speak at Work opportunities. And follow all the great podcasts produced by Lunchpad 516 Studios.